This is the Grin Podcast and I am Hindul Gupta. A lot of people around the world are wondering what's really going on between India and Pakistan, the two nuclear-armed neighbors in South Asia who seem like they're going into war once again. Is there going to be a nuclear holocaust in South Asia? Well, I thought I would do this podcast to try and explain a principle, a doctrine that I developed in 2016 to help understand how things and how Indian strategic thought had changed over the last few years into a new paradigm that most people don't seem to realize. And I call it the Shishupala principle. Now, India and Pakistan have been intertwined in conflict for 70 long years. But Pakistan has a far clearer idea of its military strategy than India. Yes, even though it has lost every direct war against India. There have been four of them till now. But something is changing in India. Let me tell you a story to explain to you what and how things are changing. It concerns one of the most complex and beautiful poems ever written. It concerns a tale within that whirlpool of ethics and moral philosophy, the Mahabharata, one of the two epic mytho-novels of India. At the heart of this story, written as a poem by the 7th century Sanskrit poet Maga lies the moral philosophy of mercy. What is the moral and ethical philosophy of mercy? Well, you must understand that the poem that Maga wrote is no ordinary rhyme. It might just be one of the most complex and beautiful poems ever written. Why? Because the poem has within it a palindrome in four directions, the most intricate poetic device in the history of poetry. But this poem of 18 cantos or 1800 stanzas is not merely about picturesque language. It is also about a critical argument of moral philosophy in the Indic tradition. It purports to ask and answer the following questions. When can a man be punished? What checks and balances, indeed indulgences, must precede the application of punishment or justice? These questions are the main key questions in this poem. The broad contours of the most attributed version of the Shishupala story contained within the poem is really this. Shishupala, a warrior, is born with more than two eyes and more than two arms. He is the cousin of Krishna, the god-man avatar of Vishnu, the preserver in the Hindu trinity. It is prophesied that when the child Shishupala falls into the arms of the man who will kill him, at that moment his extra arms and eye will disappear. 
As a child, when Shishupala comes to the arms of his older cousin Krishna, his extra arm and eye disappears. Now the poem, which is really about the story of Shishupala, talks about all this. But there is more. The story goes on to say in the poem that when the mother of Shishupala, who is also an aunt of Krishna, realizes that for the prophecy to come true, Krishna would at some point in the future have to kill Shishupala, the mother, who is called Satyavati, the mother of Shishupala that is, she does a clever thing. She extracts from Krishna the promise that Shishupala would be pardoned 100 times before he's punished. But emboldened by that promise and perhaps misleading lack of retaliation as weakness again and again, that's what Shishupala does. He misreads the lack of retaliation as weakness again and again. Shishupala attacks and humiliates Krishna 100 times. And then he does it once more. This is when the Sudarshan Chakra, the infallible discus of the God, severs Shishupala's head, killing him. This story bears a great lesson for India's often strategy, which has always professed its discerning attitude, its restraint, its responsibility as the behemoth of the subcontinent, overarching in dominance, at least on paper, in terms of arsenal and economic muscle compared to its neighbors, India has always sought restraint. It also hints, this story, at how India's reaction to Pakistan is changing these days. I believe it is changing because India now has a new principle, a new doctrine, which I call the Shishupala principle. It's a critical change of strategy, a clear or at least clearer definition of the point at which India's strategic restraint is crossed. At the moment, India derives too much of what can be called its public belief systems and security issues from a sort of bureaucratic non-violence, a dark and persistent drudgery of reinforcing status quo. Some of this, I believe, comes from a complete misreading, a misunderstanding of the Gandhian principle of non-violence, which everybody keeps saying comes from the Bhagavad Gita, the theological text in the Mahabharat, and the book Mahatma Gandhi carried with him at all times. This seems quite odd because neither the Mahabharat or the Gita really is about absolutist non-violence at all. The Mahabharat is, in reality, and apart from the colorful stories, it is really an argument on ethics. So, of course, is the Ramayan, the older epic. Both the Ramayan and the Mahabharat are really, apart from colorful stories, wonderful arguments on ethics. The Mahabharat is infinitely more complex than the Ramayan and seeks to answer extremely detailed questions of morality and ethical behavior. Both the broader text and the Bhagavad Gita within the Mahabharat make an argument for dharma, not non-violence.
Now, dharma is quite difficult to translate, but it is broadly the law or rule that governs the very nature of existence. Dharma is not made by man or God. Dharma was there before creation and will live on after it. Dharma is eternal. Dharma exceeds and predates the very notion and indeed the very perceptional existence of the entity called God. The argument of the Mahabharata and the Bhagavad Gita, indeed Krishna's argument, is that Dharma must be upheld and it is in the victory of Dharma over Adharma. Now what is Adharma? Again, it is usually described too loosely as evil. But perhaps for the sake of translation and easy translation, it can probably better be described as injustice. Now the victory of Dharma over Adharma really comes down to the big point of the Mahabharata and indeed the Ramayana. The very meaning of life is defined by this distinction between Dharma and Adharma. The distinction between human and superhuman. All of this is defined and can be understood through this distinction between Dharma and Adharma. Now Gandhi himself may have considered and understood these concepts much better than his ostensible acolytes. Remember Gandhi famously said and nobody quotes this these days because they only talk about his ostensible non-violence and of course he did speak a lot about non-violence but he had a far more intricate and detailed and nuanced understanding of what he meant by when he said non-violence or when he spoke about non-violence let me quote from gandhi gandhi said i do believe that when there is only a choice between cowardice and violence i would advise violence i would rather have india resort to arms in order to defend her honor than that she should in a cowardly manner become or remain a helpless witness to her dishonor he even said my method of non-violence that is gandhi's own method of non-violence can never lead to a loss of strength but it alone will make it possible if the nation wills it to offer disciplined and concerted violence in time of danger it is as gandhi perhaps understood only too well only the man or the nation willing to wield definitive violence i repeat definitive violence only the man or the nation willing to wield definitive violence for the defense of justice is the man or the nation which or who can truly lead an existence of non-violence but that springs up the question when as in when does such a person or nation apply violence of any kind military or diplomatic or by word or deed well the answer this answer india has always failed to adequately provide now it is not absolutely not my intention to propagate war it cannot be the intention of any sane person but it is though my point to point out 
that from Krishna to Edward Luftwaffe, the military strategist and writer, thinkers have pointed out that both war and peace are conditional and not absolutist virtues. They are conditional virtues. They are not absolutist virtues. Neither war nor peace can be anything but a conditional virtue. Consider the opening lines of Edward Lutfak's famous essay, Give War a Chance. It says, and I quote, An unpleasant truth often overlooked is that although war is a great evil, it does have a great virtue. What is its great virtue? Well, it can resolve political conflicts and lead to peace. This can happen when all belligerents become exhausted or when one wins decisively. Either way, the key is that the fighting must continue until a resolution is reached. War brings peace only after passing a cumulative phase of violence. Hopes of military success must fade for accommodation to become more attractive than further combat. Have hopes of further combat, quote-unquote, faded between India and Pakistan? No, this is because even though the Pakistani army, which is the sole custodian of that country's security and one could argue political existence, has lost every direct war that it has fought against India, in their perspective, the war against India actually has never ever stopped. Not for one single day. Therein lies their sense of everyday victory. In an earlier period, there was a talk of Pakistani military strategy of assaulting India with a thousand cuts. What does this mean? Well, since it could not win a conventional war, it would keep draining India with incessant hits by terrorism. That strategy sort of drained out after the end of violence in Punjab and the Khalistan movement. A terror-driven effort to break away Indian Punjab into a separate country called Khalistan. At the moment, what Pakistan has is the old boxing strategy of everlasting wound. An open wound, which is Kashmir, and keep striking at it to keep it perpetually open. Sometimes hit it softly, sometimes with great force but never ever let the wound close. Even the very nascent signs of healing would signal defeat. That's why it is in 2016 or 2010, every time there are a few years of relative peace in Kashmir, this wound is opened up with a vengeance once again. In fact, I wrote this essay first in 2016 and between that to today in 2019, this wound has been reopened again and again in various terror attacks, the latest of course being the Pulwama attacks. And before that, of course, remember, we had the Pathan court attack. And all of this has led to a point where India now has a new strategy. That new strategy, which most people outside don't understand, is called the Shishupala principle. This is made up of artful and dexterous drawing of lines which cannot be crossed. And if they are crossed, India will react with significant hostility and, if possible, inflict maximum damage. Now, we have to understand that what we are seeing in India 
is really the creation of this new doctrine which most people outside india cannot understand or cannot comprehend this is not easy because regional powers like india must take a responsibility for keeping the peace but india is arguing through the shishupala principle that its deterring restraint over many many years hasn't really brought it or the region any closer to peace so what exactly is this unqualified restraint really achieving the formulation of the shishupala principle lies not in lusting for war far from it in fact it is exactly the opposite of bloodlust it is in fact what i would call unfettering of the war imagination it is a sort of mental removal of gloves india does not seek war it absolutely does not seek war it does not benefit india it sees itself as a prosperous world power of the future it wants to advance its ideas and sell its goods around the world all of this would be jeopardized by war but in embracing albeit slowly the shishupala principle india is finally accepting what the military historian victor davis hansen has described as the so called tragic view within quotes he says War seems to be inseparable from the human condition. War like birth, aging, death, politics and age-old emotions such as fear, pride and honor has never disappeared. This so-called tragic view concedes that the depressing fact about the human condition and yet it steals the individual to the notion that suffering is a part of our human lot it is indeed our destiny in a sense and unfortunately cannot be eradicated by any amount of well intended nurturing india also realizes that because pakistan has much less to lose in an unrestrained and god forbid nuclear war its military can easily adopt the nixonian madman theory where it consistently drops the bar for the activation of its nuclear button lower and lower still this theory suggests that the impression is always given to one's opponent that the slightest provocation would bring forth an outrageous completely out of proportion reaction and therefore out of sheer dread the opponent would consistently supplicate at every negotiation this realization at an earlier time filled indian policy makers with terror but that point is long gone actually what has happened really is that the indian security apparatus was for many years especially in politics dominated by what i would call the pakistan romantics these men and women often came from the north of india and several of them had familial ties in india allow me a small generalization this was a set which romanticized the shared history of the urdu language and the hindi language especially the poetry and the music and the food and the distance very short distance between lahore in pakistan and amritsar in india they saw the battles between india and pakistan not for what they were bitter ideological wars which at least in pakistan defined the country's very existence but as squabbles between cousins forgetting of course that in the indic tradition the war to end all wars happened between cousins at kurukshetra in the mahabharat and it was krishna's ex- explicit advice in the gita to the archer arjun 
to fight cousins and protect dharma this set of pakistan romantics created an atmosphere or atmospherics should i say of that now infamous and rightly mocked initiative aman ki aasha or the hope for peace as i have said on many platforms aman ki aasha the hope for peace is important it is very important but this sort of irrelevant seminar organizing has actually really become because it doesn't really give any benefit at all it has become aman ka nasha the sort of addiction nasha means addiction in hindi the addiction to fictitious peace making with absolutely no real political resolution on the ground you would have also noticed that india is no longer mostly led by people from the north and that means the age of india's fear of the madman theory of the pakistani army backed by a sorted bunch of terrorists is coming to an end india is trying to move closer to the founding principles of its ancient text to construct a postmodern doctrine of firm lines that cannot be crossed that really is the shishupala principle and you can only understand what is happening at the moment between india and pakistan the two nuclear armed neighbors in south asia if you understand the shishupala principle